Ezekiel 43. I, I, I know I say this just about every week, but I just wanted to finish this whole chapter, and you know what? I just couldn't. I just couldn't. And there's a good reason why, and I think that you'll be glad that I didn't. Because back when we started our study in chapter 40, uh, as we're looking at the last section of the book of Ezekiel, we talked about the fact that there were going to be sacrifices in the millennial temple. Jesus is going to be in Jerusalem. He's going to be sitting on the throne of David. He's going to be ruling and reigning. And there's still going to be sacrifices. And, there, and, and the temple and all the things that we've been reading about is, 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 is showing us that these things are going to happen. There's going to be animal sacrifices. There's going to be priests. Uh, there's going to be an altar and whatnot. And, and we, I, I touched upon it briefly that there's reasons why there are going to be sacrifices. Tonight, we're going to talk about why. So I think you're going to appreciate that. But we're going to start reading verses 13 through 17. And remember now that what Ezekiel has been shown is that the glory of God is returning to Jerusalem, returning to a new Jerusalem on the earth. Now remember, there is going to be a new Jerusalem in heaven at the end when the, you know, the, earth, the heavens the earth will be destroyed. And then there will be a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells and a new Jerusalem. But the new Jerusalem is a Jerusalem in the place where Jerusalem is now. But it's going to be totally different. The topography is going to be different. The, the, the landscape is going to be different. The temple mount is going to be different. The temple is going to be different. Everything is going to be different. And uh, so the glory is coming back to Jerusalem. And the glory, as we said last week, is Jesus Christ himself. He is the glory of the Father. So with that in mind, we, we, we come back to verse 13 here. And then it says, these are the measures of the altar after the cubits. So this is, remember that this is the Lord speaking to Ezekiel. And he says, these are the measures of the altar after the cubit. So now the Lord is saying, hey, I want these things made exactly this way. This is the way it's going to be. If that's the case, then this is not allegorical. This is not metaphor. This is not illustration. This is truth. The cubit is a cubit and a handbreadth. So that's the long cubit that we talked about at the beginning of the measurements in chapter 40. Uh, even the bottom shall be a cubit. That would be below the altar. And the breadth a cubit and the border thereof by the edge thereof roundabout shall be a span. That'd be a, the span of the hand. And this shall be the higher place of the altar. And from the bottom upon the ground even to the lower uh, settle which is a ledge shall be two cubits and the breadth one cubit. Don't worry about, remember, don't worry too much about all this cubit business, okay? Uh, eventually, we'll show another picture later. Not today. Uh, and the breadth, one cubit, and from the lesser settle, the settle is a ledge, even to the greater settle shall be four cubits, and the breadth, one cubit. So the altar shall be four cubits, and from the altar and upward shall be four horns. And remember that the horns that are on the altar are significant when it comes to the offerings of blood, the offerings on the altar, to the Lord. And we'll, we'll come back and talk about that later. <clears throat> and the altar shall be 12 cubits long, 12 broad, square in the four squares thereof. So it's a good, the altar is going to be a square uh, 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 place. And the settle or the ledge shall be 14 cubits long and 14 broad in the four squares thereof. That's going to be the ledge that's going to be around the altar itself. So the altar, and then there's the, the ledge where the, where the priests will walk around the altar. And the border about it shall be half a cubit, and the bottom thereof shall be a cubit about. And his stairs shall look toward the east. So the stairs, there's going to be stairs here. Now remember that back in the, uh, the earlier temple, there were no stairs in the altar. Uh, here there's stairs. Okay, so just, just a reminder. So the Lord is now describing the altar of the Messianic temple with dimensions <clears throat> and giving Ezekiel God's instructions for making sacrificial offerings. That's the rest of this chapter and then into chapter 44. Uh, as we have considered in an earlier teaching, the issue of reinstituting animal sacrifices has been for some kind of perplexing, but one of the purposes of these offerings and sacrifices 
would be to remember and celebrate the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, I mentioned that before, so this is just a point of review, that one of the reasons for the offerings and the purposes is to remember and to celebrate the finished work of Jesus Christ. They will be, in other words, as memorials to honor his name and the sacrifice he made upon the cross on behalf of the human race. But significant to this is that in the kingdom of Messiah, in the kingdom of Jesus, the Jewish people will ultimately fulfill the Lord's call on their lives and will bear strong witness to the fact that Jesus, their recognized Messiah, is truly the Savior of the world. And when I say recognized, I mean that they have recognized him because they have seen, as it says in Ezekiel and in the book of Revelation, they have seen him whom they have pierced. Well, the book of Zechariah, but it's kind of implied in the book of Revelation. But the point is they have seen him and they wept when they saw that it was Jesus because they saw the scars. They saw who he was. So day by day, Week by week, month by month, year by year, they will worship the Lord by using the sacrificial system of worship as God intended it to be used. In other words, they're going to go back and do, well, they're, they're going to go forward and do exactly how God wanted them to do it from the very beginning because prescribed worship comes from God. God says, this is what I want and the people are to do just as God wants it, wants them to do it, prescribed worship. So I wonder sometimes what we do with worship uh, today, uh, because certainly we've been more free now because of the uh, because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and we've been set free to worship Him, of course, in spirit and in truth. And in the New Testament, we don't have like you know those little details of of prescribed worship as the Jews were, were given in the law. Uh, but we can sometimes take that way out of, out of uh, focus too. We can take it way out of bounds. You know, worship becoming something that is completely fleshly or man-made rather than truly from the heart. So, and again, worship is not just a matter of singing, praising, and, and whatnot. Uh, worship is a, is a part of our life. Worship is how we live our life before God. So uh, that in itself should remind us that the Lord has a certain way that he wants us then to live as well. <clears throat> so th through those sacrificial offerings then, they will profess and they will confess their faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ for their sins. The very Jews who have down through the generations have not done that. They haven't confessed that Jesus died on their behalf for their sins as a whole. Now some, some Jews have. Some Jewish people have done that. But uh, you know, they're, they're, we call them Messianic uh, Jews. They, they've, they've received their Messiah. They know who their Messiah is. And their Messiah is, is Yeshua. Their Messiah is Jesus. <clears throat> but each offering, each offering will be an acknowledgement that God accepts them only through the sacrifice Jesus made on their behalf. So they'll be done these sacrifices will be done in remembrance of what Christ has done and in remembrance of his finished work. Now, <clears throat> if we understand the role of the sacrifices under the Old Covenant, if we understand the role of the sacrifices that we see in the Old Testament, it should help us to see their significance and implication in the Millennial Temple. So first, consider the sacrifices mentioned in Ezekiel from chapter 40 on. And what would they be? I'm just going to go back and tell you what they are from chapter 40 on. They are, <clears throat> excuse me, the burnt offering, the trespass offering, <clears throat> the sin offering. My goodness, I'm losing my voice. <clears throat> ah. Okay. The burnt offering, the trespass offering, the sin offering, the peace offering, and the meal or the grain offering. And the drink offering, by the way. 
And if you want to understand the offerings according to the regulations given to Moses, you have to read Leviticus 1 through 7. So Leviticus 1 through 7, give, uh, those chapters give us the regulations that God gave to the children of Israel through Moses as to how he wants them to offer these sacrifices. So let's first of all look at the burnt offering. Because this offering, the burnt offering, focuses on one thing. It focuses on total dedication to the Lord. Total dedication to the Lord. When you put an offering on an altar where there is a fire, <laughs> because this, this altar is, 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 is a place where there is wood and, and, and whatever it is that they use to light the fire and, and get, get all that stuff going. When you place the animal on the, uh, on the fire and on the altar, I mean, that's, that's total dedication, right? That the whole animal then, or whatever is not, you know, whatever is not taken out for other use, the whole animal is, is, is totally dedicated to the Lord. I mean, not parts of it, the whole animal, okay? That, that's the picture here. Consider, if you will, Leviticus 1, verses 3 through 9. If his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it, notice, of his own voluntary will. Of his own voluntary will. So, it says, he shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. So it's something that he's offering voluntarily. He's offering, we come, you know, not forced to God. We come willingly to the Lord. And then it says, and he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. That's symbolic of, of putting your hand on the head of this, this animal that's going onto the altar and, and, and your sins transferring onto this, this animal. He's bearing your sins on that altar completely and totally. And that's what's making atonement for you. And he shall kill the bullock before the Lord. That's an interesting picture, isn't it? He shall kill the bullock before the Lord. The scriptures tell us that we need to die to ourselves. And the priests, Aaron's sons, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood round about, or round about upon the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Now remember, this is the tabernacle. And he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire upon the altar and lay the wood in order upon the fire, notice. And the priest, Aaron's sons, shall lay the parts, the head and the fat, in order upon the wood that is on the fire, which is upon the altar, but his inwards and his legs shall be washed, shall he wash in water. And the priest shall burn all on the altar to be a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. So carefully were they to do this. But the whole animal, the whole sacrifice that bore the sins symbolically on the animal for that person was put completely on the fire, totally consumed. It reminds us of what the scriptures tell us that our God is a consuming fire. But to the believer in Jesus Christ, that, cons that consuming is a good thing. Because Paul says in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies 
a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That's dealing with your worship. Your reasonable service of worship is to lay yourself completely on that altar, a living sacrifice. It, it, it suggests a daily sacrifice, a daily sacrifice, each and every one of us to daily give our lives to Jesus Christ, daily to let him take us and, and consume us in the sense of our flesh and our fleshly desires and cause us to focus our attention spiritually, to live our life by the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh, to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. And he says, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. You see the difference between conformed and transformed. To be conformed is to be with and formed with the world. And too many Christians, you know, are going through this, this struggle of, of, you know, the world is, is so much a part of the, what they do in life, you know, that sometimes they just, you know, either they, they come to church and they're not happy, they're not, they're not sure what, 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 to, what to do, or, or they just don't come at all. Because that's what the enemy tries to use the world to do, is just to take us out of that place where we are walking in the spirit of the Lord and serving the Lord with gladness and serving the Lord knowing that, uh, that you know, it isn't, it isn't by our works, it isn't by what we do, but it's all by what the spirit does in us. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. That's a changed a transformation, be transformed, changed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so the burnt offering reminds us that we are to offer ourselves totally to the Lord. We can't, we can't be walking with one foot in the world and one foot in, 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 in heaven, or one foot in, 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 uh, uh, in, in a spiritual sense. No, we have to, you know, eventually we're going to have to commit ourselves to one side or the other. Best that we walk in the Spirit of God. Best that we walk, as, De as, as, as Paul described himself uh, in, in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. And nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then comes the other, uh, the other offerings, the, the sin offering, the trespasser guilt offering. There, there's two here that we're talking about. Sin offering and the trespasser guilt offering. These offerings dealt with the sinner's offenses against the Lord God and against his people. And there, there, you know, you read Leviticus 4 through 7 for the, the insights into these particular offerings. There's a lot of things. You know, it's offenses against God, offenses against people. When we sin, we sin a lot of times against others. And what was it that, uh, you know, that David said, you know? He says, uh, when he sinned, he said, you know, I, did, I didn't, I, I, I sinned against the Lord, not, not, not just against people. You know, but sometimes we sin against God. So the sin offering was brought by those who sin through ignorance. We should know better, but we don't, and then all of a sudden we get ourselves entangled in, in, in the things of the world. And So there's a sin offering for those who come in ignorance uh, because they did something in ignorance. The trespass offering dealt with offenses for which some kind of restitution or reimbursement or compensation were to be made. You know, you did something and, you know, your neighbor's donkey fell into a hole that you were digging and, you know, the donkey died, you know, and you, you need to pay back your neighbor for what you caused, you know. 
That, that, that's a trespass offering, simply speaking. But the one making the offering was required to restore the amount of the property plus a fine of about 20% of its value. So, I mean, you've got to give back a donkey and some more stuff, you know. There's something else. And, and, and you know what the reason is? Just a simple reason for that. You pay back, but you also pay above. The very simple reason for that is that it should be a reminder to us that sin is not cheap. Sin is not cheap, and neither is God's forgiveness. God's forgiveness is not cheap. Sin is not cheap. You know, we can look around at things happening in the world today, and we can look at the things that are happening in politics, you know. People, for the longest time, getting away with bloody murder. Just getting away with murder. Getting away with all kinds of, all kinds of uh, indiscretions of one sort or another. And, uh, but eventually it catches up. And whether they catch up to you in this life, well, God will catch up with you. That's, that's really, you know, the, the worst case scenario for anybody who thinks that they're just trying to get away with it. Sin's not cheap. It was a high price to pay. And really, when we look at the cross, we should realize that every day. Sin is not cheap because one person, the sinless Son of God, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world, died because of our sins, died for us because we're sinners. So God's forgiveness is not cheap either. So again, read Leviticus 4 through 7. And let me also mention one other thing. There was no sacrifice. Uh, listen carefully, okay? I want to be misquoted here. There was no sacrifice available for domineering, deliberate, and defiant sin. There was no sacrifice for defiant sin, willful sin, deliberate sin, rebellious sin. When I say domineering, it's what dominates a person's life. And, and really, there is no offering for that. As a matter of fact, think about these words. Numbers 15, verses 30 and 31. Numbers 15. It's the fourth book of the Bible between Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Numbers 15. And verses 30 and 31, it says, But the soul that doeth aught presumptuously, whether he be born in the land or a stranger, the same reproacheth the Lord. And that soul shall, cut off, shall be cut off from among the people. When the soul that doeth aught presumptuously, presumptuously meaning, you know, presuming upon God, and reproaching the Lord is, is as if he, it's like an insult to God. And that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Notice there's no, there's no sacrifice for that sin. Interesting, isn't it? That soul shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord. Notice, despise the word. You hear the word and you say, I'm not going to do that. That's a willful act. It's not like the person who, who uh, does something and, and, and causes harm to someone else and the law says, hey, you caused harm to somebody, now you have to pay back. Oh, well, I want to pay back because I don't want to be wrong. I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be an offense to God. This is somebody hearing the law saying, if, you know, these things should be done. These, you know, you got, you've got the law that tells us that we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're not to make idols. We're not to make carved images. We're, we're, to, you know, we're to honor our father and our mother. We, it's, it's like saying to all of that, saying, I'm, I'm not going to do that. 
I got a better way to live my life than try to follow all of that stuff. That's despising the word of the Lord. And because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that soul shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity, his iniquity shall be upon him. So do you understand now when I say that there's no sacrifice for that? You're cut off. You know what the example is? If you're still there, if you read on, it talks about someone who's going around picking up, picking up sticks on the Sabbath. And somebody says, you're not supposed to be picking up sticks on the Sabbath. It had to be determined. God had to say. You had to take it to the Lord. And the Lord would make the determination. He needs to be stoned. What? Just for picking up sticks? No. Because he was defiant. God knows the heart. You see the difference? Do you all see the difference? Okay, do this or this, because I just need to know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really simple. It wasn't about picking up sticks on the Sabbath. It was about the law of the Sabbath that was broken because of the defiance, the rebellion, the disobedience of that heart. And God said, that's why you stone him. So don't look at God as if, you know, he's a, he's a capricious God that just acts, you know, the way, you, you know, as I think I said it the other day, uh, you know, acts like, uh, you know, the, the, the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain, you know. What he wants to do to show his power. No, that's not God. That's not our God. He gave the laws and the sacrifices so that they could come out of sin. But somebody who is completely defiant and is dominated in their hearts by sin, God says, no, it's got to be cut off. So I just wanted you, I wanted you all to understand the difference between the sin trespass offering and the fact that there's no offering for that kind of defiance. Unless they repent and turn and acknowledge that they've sinned against God and against someone else. That, that's where it counts. Then, then you can take them through the sin offering. Then there's the peace offering. The peace offering uh, or, or the fellowship offering. That's, it's called that also in some translations. The peace offering or fellowship offering that you find in Leviticus chapter 3 as well as in chapter 7 verses 11 to 38. It's got, it's got a lot to say about the peace offering. It was one of praise and thanksgiving unto the Lord. So the peace offering is really that. It's, it's peace with God. You're offering peace and thanksgiving and pra I should say praise and thanksgiving unto the Lord. And this would also include a special vow made to the Lord. You want to make a special vow unto the Lord that you're going you're gonna to want to fulfill. And you bring that to the Lord as far as the peace offering is concerned. Part of the meat from the sacrifice, because meat was a part of this. Part of the meat uh, from the sacrifice itself would be given to the worshipers so that they would prepare it to enjoy with their family and friends as a feast. So now, if you'll notice, you know, the meat was then taken and used by, by the, the person who brought the peace offering. And they told him, go, go have a barbecue and enjoy. Enjoy this. Now, and that's really important for a couple of reasons. Let's, let's say the more... The more mundane reason is that because, uh, you know, meat was, uh, was not eaten every day. I mean, you don't, you don't have McDonald's on every street corner, and, you know, in the tribes of Israel. You know, where you can get yourself a Big Mac or something. I've known some people that eat a Big Mac every day. Every day. Like clockwork. Because they've got to have their meat, you know. And others have got to have their meat, you know. I couldn't do that. Could you? I don't think so. I saw some guy did, did do a documentary about, you know, eating McDonald's every day. But kind of like, Makes you wonder what's in all that stuff. So just pray, you know, right? <laughs> got your meal, got your Big Mac in front of you. Lord, you know, just take out all those weird stuff. Yeah, while I'm eating. Okay. But they didn't eat meat all the time. It was a luxury, actually. <clears throat> and so this offering was an occasion for worshiping the Lord in fellowship with his people. So that's a beautiful picture. When you have peace with God, when you have fellowship with God, and you can offer a peace offering. Because who, who secured peace for us anyway? 
Jesus did, didn't he? The Prince of Peace. We had no peace when we came, you know, when we came to the Lord. We needed peace. We were at war with God. He made peace when he sent his only begotten son. And it brought to mind Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, This, when I was looking at this, because I, I thought this is exactly kind of what Paul was saying in, in, in this passage of Ephesians. And you want to read more, because there, you can go all the way actually down through verses uh, 11, 12, 13, around there. But, from, but just for tonight, 1, 1 through 3, verses 1 through 3. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, notice, with lowliness and meekness, in other words, humility, with long-suffering, patience, forbearance, or forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is what the Lord would have us to do with one another. He would have us to walk uh, <clears throat> with, worthy of this vocation. But we realize that we are in the flesh are not worthy of any good thing. So we walk in the love of God and the love of Christ because he's worthy of all. So that worthiness really comes from our relationship and our walk and our fellowship with Jesus Christ. Because then we're going to walk with all lowliness and meekness, which means we're humble before one another. We got nothing to show off to each other, do we? Nothing in this world. So if we're all humble and, and on the same level, then we need to encourage and, and love one another on the same level in, in humility. That's hard for some people. Sometimes we're, we're, we're brought up in, in, in uh, certain religious traditions where there's hierarchies and there's people that got all kinds of titles, you know, and, and oh my goodness, they treat these people like they're you know, they, they, they could float above the ground, you know, three feet off the ground. Man, they're just human. And the Lord says we're not to do that. You know, how, how can you be humble when you're wearing all kinds of weird stuff on you? And I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, not just, I'm just saying, you know what, we're, with lowliness of mind, with long-suffering, can you be patient with the quirks of others? It's hard. We sometimes, we, I mean, we sometimes look at people and the first thing we want to do is criticize something. That's, that's, that's just wrong. Now, if we know them, we can kind of, yeah, joke around a little bit, you know. But that's just between you and them. Don't bring anybody else into that. Because it could give the wrong picture. But when we're all together, we need to love each other in the same way. With humbleness, meekness, lowliness, long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit, which means doing all you can to keep the unity of the Spirit. And I've learned something in 40 over, many years, 40,000, 40, not 1,000, 40 years in the Lord, 45, something like that. I've learned something. That's hard to do. Because the flesh always wants to get in the way. The flesh always wants to get in the way. So it is something you have to, again, do by the power of the Holy Spirit. Endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That way you have peace. That way you have fellowship. Not just with God, but with one another. And that's something that the Lord would desire for us. So then there's the meal or the grain offering. Oh, and by the way, if you go back to these other offerings, this is what the, this is what the children of Israel needed. Because they were certainly struggling with all of those issues that I've brought up so far. So we get to the meal or the grain offering now. And this particular offering had to do with presenting sheaths. You know, the, 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 the sheaves of wheat or the sheaves of grain out in the field. Uh, the roasted kernels of grain after they were taken in. The, the fine flour or various kinds of baked cakes. So they're, they're, you know, when you study the meal or the grain offering, it's in various forms. 
but it was the it was the acknowledgement. The, the whole purpose, the simple purpose of the meal and grain offering was the acknowledgement that the Lord is the source of all food that sustains life. It is the acknowledgement that the Lord is the source of all the food that sustains life. This is why we give thanks to God for everything that is before us when we gather, whether it's a little bit or a lot. Give thanks to the Lord for that which he's given us that sustains our life. I think the spirit of the offering can be seen in this prayer of David's in First Corinthians, I'm sorry, in First Chronicles chapter 29, verses 10 through 14. Let me read this to you. First Chronicles 29, verses 10 through 14. It says, Wherefore David blessed the Lord before all the congregation. And David said, Blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. By the way, we get a great, uh, a great example of how to begin a prayer to God. <laughs> thine is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, the majesty, for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come of thee, and thou reignest over all. And in thine hand is power and might, and in thine hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. And that is strength by every means that God has given. That includes what he gives to sustain life. Now therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? For all things come of thee, and of thine own have we given thee. So, you know, the, the offerings you want us to give, I mean, Lord, I mean, who are we? I mean, th this is yours. You gave it to us. What we offer to you is something you already, you gave to us. So, we, you know, we give it back to you. So our prayers for the, you know, and thanksgiving for all the things that God has given you know, we're offering back, just like we're supposed to offer ourselves. He gave us life. If God gave us life, who should we live it for? See, God gave all of us life. We were all created in the image of God so that we could have fellowship with God who created us. But what does man do? Man wanted to go have fellowship with himself and others and not with God. Then there's the drink offering. Let's go, we got to move on here because of time. The drink offering. This offering was a portion of wine that was poured out along with another sacrifice. As seen in Exodus 29, verses 40 and 41. We're told here in Exodus 29, And with the one lamb, a tenth deal of flour mingled with the fourth part of a hin of beaten oil, and the fourth part of a hin of wine for a drink offering. And the other lamb thou shalt offer at even, and, uh, which is evening, and shalt do there, thereto according to the meat offering of the morning, and according to the drink offering thereof for a sweet savor, an offering made by fire un, unto the Lord. So the drink offering itself represented life poured out wholly and completely to the Lord, even as Paul commented about his own life's ministry. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 17, Paul said, yea, I, and if I be offered, and the implication here is as a drink offering, upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. So to the Philippians, he says, if I be offered upon the sacrifice, just as we just read in Exodus 29, the offering, and then there was the offering of the, of the wine. Now, what does the wine represent in, in our communion service? The blood of Jesus Christ. Blood is life. Both in the Old and the New Testament, we're told that the life is in the blood. So this is very significant here. When it is poured out, life is poured out completely and totally to the Lord. 
So those are the offerings that were mentioned in the book of Ezekiel and are mentioned in the book of Ezekiel. And when you sum them all up, all of these offerings point to the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for our sins. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. And keep a bookmark there because we're going to close with Hebrews 10 as well. But in Hebrews 10 verse 1 it says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. So notice that the offerings were just shadows. They were not the substance. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. In other words, if they were really the substance, then it would have been offered once and for all. Because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. If the blood of bulls and goats and of, of lambs and all could do exactly what they were representing to do, then it would, that one time, the whole, perp, the whole uh, point here is that then that would have made you clean and you'd be clean. You'd be clean completely. That's the point. He says, but in, the, in, in, those, in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance, again, made of sins every year. How many, how many times a year does Yom Kippur come? One time a year, once a year, same time, every year. And what do they do? The very same thing. Offer their sacrifices unto God for their sins. Today, of course, they don't have a temple, but in the synagogues, they'll meet on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, and they confess their sins and they pray and ask God for forgiveness. But in those sacrifices, there is remembrance again made of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Not possible. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins, thou hast had no pleasure. So in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, they were done, but as a picture the shadow of things to come. But the burnt offerings and sacrifices themselves for sin, he had no pleasure in that. He, he was not looking at the sacrifices. He was looking at the heart of the ones who were sacrificing. That's the point. Then said I, lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, Messiah, to do thy will, O God. Above when he, above when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offerings for sin thou wouldst not, neither has pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. He takes away the first being the, the shadows. And he establishes the second, the substance. Just a few weeks ago, on Thanksgiving Day, Wherever you were at, the, 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 the host of, of, of your dinner or lunch did not bring out this beautiful turkey, sit it on the windowsill, open the window, but put it on the windowsill where the sun was shining so that the shadow of the turkey could, could land on the table and then say, okay, dig in to the shadow. Didn't do that, right? You ate the turkey, the substance. That's the picture here. By the, which will, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So the Lord forgave the sins of the worshipers if they brought the sacrifices by faith and trusted wholeheartedly in the Lord because the blood of animals could never remove the guilt of man's sins. The forgiveness of God was declared because of the work of the Messiah, Jesus, which was pictured by the sacrifice. Just remember that Old Testament believers weren't forgiven because animals died, but because they put their faith in the Lord. They put their faith in God.
just as David did when he prayed that great prayer of, of, of repentance in Psalm 51. And he said, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open, thy, uh, open thou my lips and my mouth shall show forth thy praise for thou desirest not sacrifice. Else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God. Listen to this. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou will not despise. God does not despise a heart broken before God for sin. He will not despise a contrite heart, a heart that is full of, of repentance for the sins that were committed. Not like the, the defiant one who did what he wanted to do because he, he was just rebellious against God's law. There's a lot of people like that today. No, he, he trusted the Lord. And by the way, this is the reason why in Psalm 51, if you read earlier, you know, we oftentimes sing, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And David says, cast me not away from thy presence, O Lord. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. And we say, well, why can't, how can he say that? You know why he can say that? And why it's valid for him to say that? And why it was inspired by God to say that? Because it goes back to what I said about the sin offering, the trespass offering, and the fact that there is no offering for the defiant and rebellious heart. What he's saying to God is, don't cast me from your presence, Lord. That's not my heart. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. That's not my heart. Yes, I sinned, and you know, David sinned greatly, didn't he? But he said, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and renew a right spirit within me. That's why it's not a bad prayer. <laughs> That's why I think we should always remember the heart that says, Lord, that's not me. I do believe and trust that the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse me. And, and John, in 1 John 1, 9, says, confess your sins. If you confess your sins, he's faithful to forgive you your sins to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Because that confession says, that's not me, Lord. Yes, I'm a sinner, but I'm not going to be defiant. I'm, I blew it, but I'm not defiant. And so if animal sacrifices are used in the millennial temple, they will not minimize or even negate the finished work of Christ any more than these sacrifices did before Jesus died. You see? They will, in fact, be expressions of love and devotion to the Lord and bring people together for fellowship and feasting to God's glory and praise. Turn to Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56, because what we're looking here at is a picture of the, of the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ. It says, even unto them will I give in mine house and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also, the sons of the stranger 
that join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, every one that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant. Remember, during the time of the millennial temple and the millennial kingdom and Jesus on the throne, every one that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and take hold, taketh hold of my covenant, even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Jew and Gentile, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Isn't that a wonderful connection? The full counsel of the word of God during this time will be studied there by both Jew and Gentile and the sacrifices will serve as the pictures and the illustrations for all to know with all wisdom and understanding what our Messiah, what our Creator, what our intercessor, what our substitutionary sacrifice did for them and for us. Amen? I'm getting excited. It's okay. I'm not going to have a heart attack. I'm going to be all right. I'm excited, though. We need to be excited about that day. Consider the words of John in his first letter to the church when he writes in 1 John 5, verses 9 through 13, he says, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He that has the Son has life and he that has not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. And I mention this because I want you to know that the finished work of Christ, the Christ who will be on the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem near to the very temple of God, which in fact will be his throne, will be open to each and every one of you that believe in Jesus Christ. You have eternal life. That's the promise that God has given you. This is why we can't keep looking back at temporal life as if it's something that we need to take with us. Remember, the road is narrow. Narrow is the way that leads to righteousness. Why is the broad way so broad? Because everybody wants to take something with them. Everybody takes their baggage to hell. Because they thought that there was that baggage that was going to make them happy, that was going to make them right, that was going to make them good, that was going to make them rich, that was going to make them something. But narrow is the way that leads, and straight is the way that leads to salvation. We got no baggage to take. I don't want to take anything from here to, to heaven. Enjoy what you got now, folks, because you know at one point it's all gonna burn. Enjoy what you have now. Appreciate what God has given you now. Appreciate it. Man, I got a lot of I got a lot of pages left here. I better keep going. Okay. I only got five minutes. Now, nah, you guys don't mind. Yeah, you do, but love me anyway, please. All right, so having these things hopefully better understood about the sacrifices during the time of the millennial kingdom. Now let's look at the next passage, which is in Ezekiel 43, verse 13. And it's just really the measurements. Again, these are the measure, measures of the altar after the cubits. The cubit is a cubit and a hand breadth. Even the bottom shall be a cubit and the breadth, a cubit and the border thereof by the edge thereof round about shall be a span. 
This shall be the higher place of the altar. I'll explain all this in a second. And from the bottom upon the ground, even to the lower settle, shall be two cubits, and the breadth one cubit, and from the lesser settle, even to the greater settle, shall be four cubits, and the breadth one cubit. So the altar shall be four cubits, and from the altar and upward shall be four horns. And the altar shall be 12 cubits long, 12 broad, square in the four squares thereof. And the settle shall be 14 cubits long and 14 broad in the four squares thereof. <clears throat> and the border about it shall be half a cubit, and the border thereof shall be a cubit about. And his stairs shall look toward the east. And most of you are going to be real happy that we're not going to talk about cubits anymore tonight. So the altar itself is going to be located in the inner courtyard right in front of the temple. Right in front of the temple. Its basic design will be quite simple. We saw that back in chapter 40, verse 47, where it says, so he measured the court 100 cubits long, 100 cubits broad, four square, and the altar that was before the house. So the, the altar was right in front of the temple. And according to the dimensions given, the altar will be 19 feet high. Pretty high altar. Although some of it will be below ground. The part of the altar that is above ground will be 10 long cubits high. That's kind of described in, the, in all the things that we read, which corresponds with Solomon's temple height. Now, Solomon's temple height was 10 cubits, but it was the smaller cubit, so it wasn't as high. Uh, so it was only 15 feet instead of 17.5 feet of Messiah's temple altar. So just a little shorter. But what's important to note are the words used for altar. This is what's more important. The words used for altar in this passage. Because the word for altar in verse 13 is the Hebrew word mitzbeach, mitzbeach, which comes from the word zabach, which means to slaughter. So an altar is a place where there will be slaughter. And of course that is the slaughter that comes through the priest that cut up the offerings that place them upon the wood of the fire and so on and so forth. But in verse 15, two different words from the same root word are used to describe the altar. Verse 15 says, so the altar, that is the word harel, harel, which means mount of God, shall be four cubits. And from the altar, the second word altar there, is not Harel, it is the word Ariel. Ariel. And Ariel is Lion of God. Isn't that interesting? Mount of God shall be four cubits. And from the altar, and the whole, the whole terminology is, is Umi Hariel. Ay, my Hebrew. Umi Hariel. So that's from the altar but it includes the word Ariel or Ariel. So Harel, the Mount of God, more than likely denotes the high security to be conveyed by it to the restored Israel. It was a high place for God, or I should say a high place of God, but not of idols. And, and that needs to be noted because, of course, throughout even the time of the, of the temples of the past, uh, the Jews would go and worship the Lord and offer sacrifices. And then when that was done at night, they'd go up to the high places and offer to idols. Okay, so there's no more of that. This is the high place. So the altar is high. Okay, you got the picture? And then, as for Ariel, it has a practical meaning in that it also means hearth because it devoured and consumed the burnt offerings, much as a lion does of its prey, consumes. So the hearth, as we noted from our example in, earlier in Exodus, I believe that, you know, that uh, the, the, um, the offerings were cut up into pieces and placed, and of course the fire consumed it. Well, you know, it was a picture of, of consuming just like a, a lion consumes its prey. But it goes even deeper than that. 
Because in Isaiah 29, verse 1, it says, Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add ye year to year, let them kill sacrifices. You know what, the, what it says? That's, a, that's actually an irony. It's an ironic statement. Add year to year. Yeah, go ahead and offer year to year to year. You're still going to have to face judgment. That was the point here. Ariel was a kind of code name for Jerusalem. In one respect, the Lord was going to turn the Lion of God into an altar hearth, Ariel, to become a place of slaughter to humble what had become a proud city rather than a city that humbled itself before its God. It was a warning that another lion, which was a symbol, by the way, of the Assyrians, would be used by the Lord to turn up the heat, as it were, as this army marched triumphantly through Judah and almost took Jerusalem in 701 B.C. The Lord defeated the Assyrians in an instant, which should have brought Judah back to the Lord, right? Should have brought Judah back to the Lord. But they returned to their sins. And therefore the city became the altar hearth at the hands of the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And one reason this happened is because the hearts of the people of Jerusalem and all of Israel were far from God. In the very same chapter, Isaiah 29, verse 13, it says, Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Think about this. Jesus used the same words to the hypocrites, the religious leaders of Israel during his time, his earthly ministry, when he said in Matthew 15, verses 7 through 9, listen, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, this people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. The religious leaders trusted more in, in the, in the uh, extra-biblical writings of the rabbis than they trusted in the word of God. That was simply what Jesus was pointing out to them. So where is the church today as the day of Jesus Christ approaches? Where are we today? If we're not with the word of God, if we're not really studying it and really keeping up with what God is saying, especially in our times, then we're teaching doctrines and commandments of men. So what I wanted to leave you with, and I'm going to read this quickly because we're just a little bit late, but it's Hebrews 10 again. But verses 19 through 25. I want to close with this for two reasons. The first reason is I didn't want to close with Jesus' last statement of, of saying, you know, hypocrites and, uh, you know, you draw near me with your lips, but your heart's far from me. I don't want any of your hearts to be far from God. So I, I share this to give you the encouragement, but it's also a warning. Remember that exhortation is not just encouragement, it's also warning. So the warning first, and then comes the encouragement. Having therefore, brethren, boldness, verse 19, to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, the, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart. Notice, a true heart. Not a heart that's far from God a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. And remember, Jesus' blood is, effect, is effective once we are sprinkled with the blood of Christ. How effective is it? He doesn't have to die again. The animals had to die every year, almost every day, but not the blood of Jesus. Sprinkled, it says, from an evil conscience. Our bodies washed with pure water. That's the daily thing. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promise. You don't have to waver in your faith. The Lord's, the Lord's good with his promises. 
Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. This is what we need to do in the body of Christ today. Provoke is a strong word. Provoke unto love. Stir people's hearts to love and good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the matter of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. What day is that? The day of Jesus Christ. Well, we see it approaching now more than Paul saw it in those days, more than the other apostles saw it in their days. We're seeing it now. All the more, we need to provoke one another into love and good works. Stir one another. Love one another the way that Jesus loved us.